On Thursday the 10th of November 1994, a man called Gary Samuels frantically flagged down a passing car on the side of the Mississippi River. He was shaking and clearly wet. The brother and sister who were in the car stopped and asked him what was wrong. He went on to say that he and his wife had been driving when a car had run them off the road and their vehicle went headfirst into the nearby river, flipping and trapping them both inside. Officers arrived just after 9pm and Gary pointed them to the car, overturned and lying in the body of water. He said that his wife was still inside. He tried to pull her out and to safety but she was unconscious and he couldn't pull her through the open window. He told them he'd thought there was no point in both of them dying, so he'd decided on saving himself and had been waiting by the side of the river ever since. This is Red Rum. Stories about the true victims of crime. Barbara Lanthier. Even before the officers had arrived at the scene, another man who was passing had jumped into the river and gotten onto the top of the car. He had a torch that he was using to try and see how best to get into the car. He and the officers who just arrived managed to pull open the door and together they dragged Barbara out of the truck, through the water and onto the shore. Rescuing Barbara from the car took approximately 20 seconds, according to the detective. Barbara was alive, but barely. She was unconscious and freezing cold and was rushed to hospital. But at 9.38pm that same evening, Barbara was pronounced dead. At the same time, one of the officers who had helped to get Barbara out of the car and onto the shore was beginning to show signs of hypothermia. He'd only been in the water for a matter of minutes, but at a temperature of just four degrees, the effects had happened quickly. He did make a full recovery, but at the same time, Gary was rushed to hospital with the understanding that he would be experiencing extreme hypothermia symptoms. Whilst he was there, Officers needed to question him as soon as possible so they could get the most accurate version of the events that had happened that night. Gary told officers that he'd picked Barbara up as she was closing the clip joint, the hairdressing shop that she worked at, at around 7.20pm. The couple had plans to go for dinner with another couple they knew in Almont, the next town over. They left the hairdressing shop and headed along to meet their friends. He said on their way there, they'd taken a route where they had to drive under a bridge that had a three-way intersection and towards the side of the Mississippi River. Out of nowhere, Gary heard Barbara scream, quote, there's a car coming without its headlights on. And he saw a vehicle heading towards them from the right side. It didn't have its headlights on and it came right at them, causing them to have to swerve off the side of the road and into the river. Gary said the next thing he remembered was opening his eyes and feeling the sensation of being upside down. He managed to find a pocket of air where he stayed while he collected his thoughts and decided on his next plan of action. He then opened the driver's side window and started to force his way out. He said he did attempt to pull Barbara towards him, but she got stuck on something and he was running out of air. Although the section of the river they were in was only waist height, by now the car was almost completely filled up with water because of the way it had flipped. Gary swam the short distance the rest of the way to the shore and pulled himself out of the water. During this, he mentioned to detectives that he and Barbara hadn't fought and rarely argued at all. They'd lived together since 1985 and by all accounts were a happy couple. He also added that she couldn't swim. The detectives became suspicious early on when parts of Gary's story didn't seem to fit with the crime scene. For one thing, the area where Gary said the accident had happened, where the car essentially ran him and Barbara off the road, 
didn't have the length enough for his car to get to a high speed. On top of that, there were no brake marks at all on the road. The first thing you do if your cars are going at speed towards a body of water is to brake. But there was no evidence of Gary having attempted to brake at all. He also changed his story a number of times. At first, he told officers that the vehicle had run him off the road and it was a truck. He changed this many months later to being a truck with a plow on it. And he told other people that it wasn't a truck at all. It was actually a car. He also changed the direction the other car or truck was coming from, initially saying it came from the right-hand side and later saying it had come head-on. Gary was quick to push for Barbara's body to be cremated as soon as possible. He didn't want to wait for the children, he wanted to do it on his own and he wanted to do it now. But, of course, detectives were already extremely suspicious about his version of events and so they put a stop on the cremation whilst they conducted an autopsy. The medical examiner found that Barbara had a number of injuries and bruises that weren't consistent with a car accident. She had no injuries to where you'd expect if she'd been in a car crash, arms or hands as if attempting to protect yourself. Instead, she had injuries to her wrists, her left elbow and on her face. It was concluded that Barbara had water in her windpipe and so the death was most likely from drowning. Gary had three cuts on his face that were immediately apparent to officers. Although Gary gave an excuse for this as having cut himself under the dashboard, the detectives considered that these were likely scratch marks, and at this point, the investigating team are thinking that they're probably scratch marks from someone trying to defend themselves. Gary's car had been towed immediately after the rescue operation, and so the morning after his wife's death, Gary had called his insurance broker to say that he wanted to move his car from the place it was being stored because the fees were quite high. But he was advised to leave it there so that he could claim on the insurance. If the car was destroyed before it had been inspected, the insurance wouldn't pay out and so Gary agreed. Kind of. He agreed on that phone call, but immediately after that, he called through to the towing facility and asked if his car could be transferred to a wrecking yard. The person on the other end of the line said that in cases such as this, he'd have to wait for the police to authorise it. Gary responded that he'd already spoken to his insurance broker, who said that it had already been taken care of, which wasn't true. The examination of the car told detectives a lot about the reality of what had happened that night. The gas cap was left slightly off, meaning that gasoline would have completely emptied once the car was upside down. The reason this was significant was because when Gary had been brought into the hospital, the staff there had noticed that his clothing smelt strongly of gasoline. This was in stark contrast to how Barbara's had smelt. There was no gasoline smell on her, presumably because she'd been in the water for so long and so the water had washed off the smell. This was puzzling to officers because Gary had claimed the two of them had been in the same car, in the same water, for a similar amount of time. He'd also claimed that he'd been in the freezing cold water inside the car for anywhere between 45 and 90 minutes. Again, this was extremely unlikely, given his claims of having been able to force the window down, pull Barbara towards him, get out of the small window space and make his way onto the shore. The officer, who had been in the water for a number of minutes, was experiencing severe hypothermia. The fact that Gary wasn't was suspicious. As well as this, an eyewitness put Gary at his home at 7.30pm on the night of the supposed accident. 
This again threw off Gary's version of events. He claimed that at that time he was fighting for his life in an upturned car that sat in the river. It was clear that Gary had gone home before heading back out in the car. Detectives thought that this is actually when he'd attacked Barbara. They stated that the two fought and then he likely drowned Barbara in the hot tub before moving her body to their car and then driving towards the Mississippi River before staging the scene and Barbara's death as an accident rather than a murder. We know the most likely reasons as to motive for murder are usually money and Gary had taken out 27 life insurance policies on Barbara. They totaled to over $2 million. They also learned that Gary was a licensed life insurance seller and so he certainly understood the logistics of how much he was having to pay and how to get paid. Obviously, the premiums, the monthly payments on these 27 policies were extortionate and he needed to pay them somehow. But he had a plan. He had put all of the payments to go directly out of a credit card account that he'd gotten in Barbara's name. The credit cards in question were ones that had a death policy. That meant that if the person who owned them died before they paid off the amount of debt they'd built up, then the debt would be completely wiped. He knew exactly what he was doing. He planned to get a load of money for insurance policy payouts, and he knew he wouldn't even have to pay off the large debts he'd gotten from having those insurance policies in place. The lead detective questioned a number of people close to Gary and Barbara. One of the people he got in touch with was a travel insurance agent who told him that at around 3pm on the 10th of November, just hours before Barbara's death, an anonymous call came in asking if the caller bought a specific type of insurance, whether it would cover a car accident death in Ontario on the way to a holiday, to which the insurance agent said she wasn't sure. The anonymous caller revealed himself later that day when Gary came in in person to the travel insurance store to have a more detailed discussion. After that thorough discussion and being satisfied that there would be a payout, Gary bought the policy. On the 6th of June 1996, officers turned up at Gary's home address and arrested him for the murder of his wife. Detectives decided they needed more evidence and unfortunately, there was quite a big hole in their case because they didn't take any evidence measurements on the night of the incident. At the time, the people at the scene were just focusing on trying to save Barbara. The operation was a rescue, not a murder scene at that point. So they just didn't have the evidence from the car that they really needed. But the investigating team had a plan. Although they didn't have the physical car in the water to take measurements, they did have photos of the car at the scene. With the crime scene photographer's help, they managed to recreate the scene and exactly where the car ended up. With that, they were able to estimate the speed the car was travelling, and that version of events did not line up with Gary's version, but it did line up with the crash being intentional, and ultimately not an accident, but a murder. Gary pleaded not guilty, and the case went to trial. During the trial, the prosecution brought up the fact that Gary had only ever contacted the police twice to discuss his wife's case, and he only offered up important information when he was prompted to do so. Quote, Why did he not run to the police with information that this was a truck with a plough? Why did he wait for police to find him in March of 1995 and then tell them? If this vehicle was true, if this truck, as he claimed in March, was truthful, why isn't he beating down the door, helping the police find this person who killed his wife? 
Why isn't he calling the police saying, what's going on? What's up? I've got information to help you. Find this person that killed my wife and what are you doing? What's up? There's none of that. End quote. Ultimately, Gary was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. He died from cancer whilst he was in prison in 2010. Barbara Lanthier was a 46-year-old, happy-go-lucky kind of woman who was described as the life of the party. And her two sons from a previous relationship, Kevin and Sean, learned that Gary had ignored a request in Barbara's will to have her organs donated after her death. The brothers had retrieved her ashes from the funeral home days after her murder. They'd been on their way to Carlton Place to scatter her ashes when they got a phone call from Gary. He demanded they bring her ashes back to the funeral home. And at this point, Kevin and Sean had no idea their mum had been murdered, so they did bring her ashes back to him. They never saw the ashes again and say that, quote, she has no resting place. We have no place to visit her. Thank you for listening to this episode of Red Rum. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week for another episode of Red Rum. Bye.